And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Who would have thought that that act of God would ignite the gender wars being fought today? You know, why didn't God just make us all the same? Why the distinction between male and female? Well, apparently it had to do with the image of God. God has revealed himself as triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And before the creation of man, he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God is one, but he's not alone. He is within himself relational in nature, and he said it was not good for man to be alone. So he made us in two forms that would also be relational in nature. He made us male and female, two forms that would correspond to each other and make possible the kind of relationship he has within himself. You know, God did not create men and women for competition. He created them for completion, to complement one another, to become one as he is one. It didn't take long, however, for Satan to raise doubts about God's intent in creation and to bring disharmony between God and man and men and women. That disharmony between the sexes has now gone from the treatment of women and their role in society to a complete denial of the di difference between men and women if not blinded by an agenda that refuses to acknowledge the difference, the physical difference between boys and girls is obvious. The role each should play, however, is open for debate, even in the church. And that debate comes sharply into focus when the question of ordination is raised. Many of you know that I had two uncles who were ordained ministers. Few of you are aware of the fact that my great-grandmother was also an ordained minister. My grandma told me about her and showed me a picture of her in a rocking chair with a Bible on her lap and weeds at her feet that were in the shape of a cross. I even found her ordination papers in a trunk many years ago, but I don't remember what church had ordained her. I am pretty sure, however, that it wasn't a Christian church that shares a heritage in the Restoration Movement. We have traditionally been very hesitant to ordain women, but that is apparently changing. In fact, a Timothy of our church, who happens to be a woman, is being ordained into the ministry this afternoon at the church where she is serving. 
Recognizing that not everyone thinks women should be ordained, and in an attempt to avoid controversy, I believe Mark and Tina haven't said much about it. But Olivia is being ordained today. The controversy over ordination has to do with what it signifies in the mind of those doing the ordaining, the recipient, and society at large. If it is simply a public recognition of the giftedness of an individual who is serving in the church in an official capacity, few would find it objectionable. If it's viewed as imbuing someone with authority over others in the church, many feel that it steps beyond the bounds of biblical authorization and may in fact be unbiblical. Not being in a position to ascertain everything behind Olivia's ordination, I will simply be celebrating her love for Christ and her desire to serve him this afternoon. And I ask you to pray for her as she strives to be the most effective servant of Christ possible. Now I bring this up in the context of my sermon because in the text for today, Paul gives Timothy specific instructions to pass on to men and women in the church. And what he says makes it clear that distinctions are to be made between men and women, and their roles in the church are different. This teaching has been a source of contention for nearly 2,000 years, so let's not expect to all come to agreement on it this morning. But let's tighten the bonds of love and with a spirit of acceptance and mutual respect for the convictions of each other, let's examine this passage as openly and honestly as possible, trusting that the Holy Spirit will enlighten us and draw us together in spite of possible differences of opinion. The apostle begins by painting a picture of holy men in prayer. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. When Paul says he wants men in every place to pray, I believe he's talking about places of worship. Since the early Christians didn't have church buildings, they did meet in all kinds of places, in public buildings, synagogues, homes, along the riverbank, and even in the catacombs during time of persecution. Paul's desire for men in every place to pray can therefore be taken quite literally because the church met in every place. And he's already told us what the focus of those prayers should be. They should be for all men, and particularly for those in positions of civil authority who can affect the social climate in which the church is to operate. The church is to pray for opportunities to be what Christ set her in the world to be. 
So not only should her prayers be inward, expressing concerns of the body, but outward as well. Praying for those outside the church and for opportunities to reach them with the gospel. This Paul has already made plain. Now he specifies who should offer up those entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. He says it should be men who can lift up holy hands. Now, I don't believe he's talking about uh, a particular posture in prayer. It is true that most Jewish prayers were offered with hands outstretched, palms up, and eyes toward heaven. But other positions of prayer are also mentioned as being appropriate, including kneeling, bowing, and even prostrate on the ground. So I don't think it's the hands being lifted up that is Paul's concern. It is that the hands of those doing the praying be holy, that they be free from defilement, that they be spiritually clean. His relationship is that, or his concern is that those who lead in public prayer in the church have a right relationship with the Lord. One that in spite of failure and the occasional sin that plagues us all, keeps them clean. You know, nothing damages the witness of the church more than for men of scandalous reputation to lead in the services. If a man is of questionable character or even worse, known to be unchristlike in the home or community or business, he should not be allowed to lead in prayer or any other aspect of worship, even if he is the most eloquent orator in the congregation. Nor should anyone lead in the church who has wrath and dissension in his heart. Jesus made it plain that if we come to worship while harboring something against a brother, that that worship is unacceptable. He instructed us to go and be reconciled to our brother before we come to worship. The same is obviously true of a leadership role in worship. We're not fit to lead in any aspect of worship if we are harboring ill will in our heart or if we are trying to stir up dissension in the church. Only men who can lift up holy hands are to lead in prayer. I'm sure none of us has a problem with that. No one wants to see a hypocrite leading in worship. However, a sticky question does come up when we focus on the word men. Is Paul saying that only men, as opposed to women, can pray in the church? Or is he merely saying that only men who have holy hands can pray? Some do hold that he is here limiting the public prayers to male members of a congregation. And if that is true, we are in violation because we do allow women to pray and even encourage it during our prayer time. I'm sure you've noticed more often than not, it's women who pray during our prayer time. I don't know why men don't, but I'm thankful that the women do. But is that wrong? Are we doing something wrong? 
before we decide, let's read on, because I think we're going to discover that Paul may very well have left room for godly women to publicly pray in church. Verses 9 and 10. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Now, the key to understanding this sentence is the introductory word, likewise. Just as men are to pray only if they have holy hands and are not harboring wrath and dissension in their heart, so women are to pray only if they are clothed in good works and godliness. I believe that's what Paul is saying here. Now, it is true that Paul does not specifically say, likewise, I want women to pray. But I believe that that understanding can be readily ascertained from the context. He's been talking about prayer. And I see no reason to assume a shift in focus here. Not everyone agrees with that. Some do believe Paul has limited public praying to men and that he has changed the topic here to simply address women's dress in church with no thought of them praying in public. However, in 1 Corinthians 11, we discover that Paul did allow women to pray and even prophesy if certain precautions were taken. So I don't believe we can rule out the propriety of women praying in public. What Paul is saying here, I believe, is that if women are to pray in the worship service, they must be adorned in such a way that attention is drawn to their godly character and sincerity, not to their external appearance. He says they should be adorned modestly and discreetly. And to illustrate what he means, he says they should not be adorned with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now, I don't believe he is ruling out the tasteful use of jewelry here, nor saying women must have straight hair and wear clothing from Walmart if they wish to pray in church. In 1 Peter 3, where Peter says wives should not let their adornment be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but that it should be the hidden person of the heart, he wasn't suggesting that women run around the house undressed. He was simply stressing the fact that women should not put on an ostentatious display of physical beauty in order to gain the respect of their husbands. I think Paul is basically saying the same thing here with regard to the church. And I believe it's obvious some have missed the point. In an attempt to follow the letter of the law, they have actually called undue attention to their adornment by wearing their hair pulled back in a bun, avoiding jewelry and makeup, and intentionally wearing unflattering clothing. I think it's the extremes that Paul is forbidding here. 
When a woman prays in church, all eyes shouldn't be riveted on her jewelry or hairstyle or dress. What she is saying should be the focus of attention, and her godly character and her life of good deeds should be obvious to all. So apparently men and women should be allowed to publicly pray in church. That is, men who have holy hands and are free from wrath and dissension, and women who are adorned with good works and godliness. There seems to be very little difference between men and women when it comes to praying in the public assembly. However, Paul does go on to indicate that in some areas there are differing roles for men and women in the church. Verses 11 and 12. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Paul says a woman should quietly receive instruction with entire submission. I realize those are inflammatory words for many. And not all agree what he means by that or how it should be put into practice. But I think he's indicating that when a woman is being taught, she should recognize the authority of the one doing the teaching and quietly receive the instruction. But what if she disagrees with what's being taught? What if false doctrine is being proclaimed? Is she to accept it unquestionably? No, no. I believe Paul makes provision for that in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, in effect, that if a woman questions what is being taught, she should ask her husband about it at home. I think he's indicating that rather than challenge the authority of the one doing the teaching in church, she should share her concerns with her husband and then let him deal with it. That, I believe, is what he's talking about when he says women are to keep silent in the church. The immediate context of his statement has to do with affirming or denouncing a prophetic statement being made in church. So I think Paul is saying that women are not to publicly challenge what is being taught. He's basically saying the same thing when now writing to Timothy. When he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men, I do not believe he is prohibiting women from teaching. The focus is on their not exercising authority over men. As we've already mentioned, Paul speaks of women praying and prophesying, which is a form of teaching in 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul specifically told Titus that older women are to teach what is good, to teach younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, and subject to their husbands so the word of God 
will not be dishonored. So women are obviously not prohibited from teaching in the church. Now, some do believe they should not teach men. But teaching is not the issue here. So we're not even going to deal with it. The issue is women challenging the authority of men in the church. And Paul makes it very clear that women are to be subject to the authority of men in the church as they are to be subject to their husbands in the home. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, he insists that even while praying or prophesying, women must acknowledge the authority of men over them. The symbol of being under authority in that day was a covered head. So he says they must have their heads covered when praying and prophesying. Now, outside the Muslim world, that symbol is meaningless today. But the underlying principle is still valid. No woman should be allowed to teach in the church who refuses to acknowledge the place of authority God has given to men. And as we'll see next week, that authority is expressed in the church through the eldership. And there is no authorization or precedent in Scripture that would allow for women to serve as elders of a congregation. So the Bible does make a distinction between the role of men and women in the church. And the distinction centers around who is to exercise authority in the church. Now, some do maintain that that distinction was only cultural and therefore does not apply to the church in the 21st century. That in this day of equality, there should be no distinction between men and women in the church. After all, they argue, didn't Paul say in Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus? That, they maintain, does away with any distinction whatsoever between the sexes in the church. If that is true, however, Paul contradicts himself. Because he does make functional distinctions. And he doesn't base the difference on cultural arguments. Let's see what he does base it on. Verses 13 and 14. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Instead of basing his argument on cultural factors, which would in effect limit his argument to the day in which he was living, Paul goes back to the very beginning and bases his argument on creation and the fall. That would seem to disarm those who feel they can dismiss his conclusions as not applicable to our situation today. Paul notes that it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. 
By calling to mind the priority in creation, he was reminding us of the fact that woman was made for man, not man for woman. Eve was created to be a helper for Adam, to complete and complement him, not to rule over him. But after the fall, God did specifically state that Adam was to rule over Eve. This headship of men in the home is consistently reaffirmed in Scripture, and it is here applied to life in the church as well. So on the basis of priority in creation, women are to recognize the headship of men in the church. And since it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, Paul argues that women should not be in positions of authority in the church. Now, I don't think Paul is suggesting that women are to be penalized because of the weakness of Eve. But it does appear that he is intimating that by nature, women are more easily deceived than men. That it is their nature to be more accepting and trusting, and therefore more prone to deception. So they should not be given the responsibility of overseeing the teaching that takes place in the church. Now, I don't think we need to be dogmatic about the psychological differences between men and women. But that seems to be a factor in Paul's conclusion. And be that as it may, his arguments are tied directly to creation and the fall and therefore cannot be dismissed as cultural in nature. Then, believe it or not, he concludes this discussion with an even more controversial statement. One that is difficult to understand, but one that actually presents a special glory for women. Verse 15. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now this verse has a special place in my heart because of something that happened years ago. I was at the old WIBI on Ask the Pastor, responding to written questions and questions from the radio audience on a specific topic when I got the call. Pastor, I was reading in 1 Timothy, and I don't understand what 1 Timothy 2.15 means. What did Paul mean when he said women shall be saved through the bearing of children? Now, that was decidedly off-topic, but I stumbled awkwardly through an answer. Then I then stopped by the Carlinville Christian Church to visit with Mike Kilgallen, a former youth minister. I was met with laughter. I had been set up by him and his secretary. <laughs> Like I said, this is a most difficult verse to interpret. And through the years, at least four basic understandings have been proposed. The first two I quickly reject. The last two, I think, bear our consideration. The first of the two understandings I reject 
is that this verse is teaching that women find salvation through the bearing of children, that somehow through the process of giving birth, they find the Lord, and that if they continue in faith and love and sanctity, they will be saved. Now, obviously, that doesn't square with the fact that salvation comes only through responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ and submission to his lordship. The second understanding I reject is that Paul is saying that women of continued faith and love and sanctity will be divinely protected through the birth-giving process, and that that experience will therefore never be a life-threatening one for them. Experience proves this to be faulty understanding, because many godly women have died while giving birth, including Rachel of the Old Testament. The first understanding that I take seriously is that Paul isn't referring to eternal salvation when he speaks of being preserved or saved, but that he is saying that women find real fulfillment in becoming mothers, that their emotional salvation, their sense of fulfillment does come from not from being authoritative teachers in the church, but from bearing children and watching those children continue in faith and love and sanctity. The grammar allows such an interpretation, and there's obviously a lot of truth to it. The final understanding that may be possible is that Paul is here referring to the birth of Jesus. Even though the New American Standard translates the first part of verse 15 as, but women, the Greek is actually singular here. It should probably be translated, but she, And since verse 14 was talking about Eve and her transgression, this could be a reference to the fact that in spite of her transgressions, she was promised salvation through her seed, referring, of course, to the fact that the Son of God was to come to earth through the seed of woman. And then the plural, the they of the last half of the verse, could be broadening the effect of that birth to include all women, who continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Again, we can't get dogmatic on just what Paul is saying here. But any way you interpret it, he is extolling a special glory for women. Even though they may not be allowed to exercise authority over men in the home or in the church, they are very special And they have a glory that no man can really share with them. In some respects, that should even the score. Both men and women should feel very important and equally valuable to the Lord and to the church. And while it is true that we've only mentioned the need for submission on the woman's part this morning... It is equally true that both women and men can walk with the Lord only if they are willing to submit fully to his lordship. So our time of commitment is directed to both men and women, and both are equally invited to come and surrender their all to the Lord Jesus Christ.